I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Investpodden. You're listening to Investpodden with Ronja and Ted. And today we are honored to have the Silicon lawyers Maureen and Merrick from Paradigm. Did I say the right? Paradigm Council? Paradigm. Paradigm. Jesus, I can't speak English. Uh, I can't speak here- Swedish, <laughs> so we're even... <laughs> You guys are here in the studio with us. Welcome. You are so welcome to be here. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. We're very happy to be here. Well, we met last year because uh, we have the Sync Lawyers here with us on Mondays. Uh, and you guys are here in Sweden sharing all your knowledge uh, about moving a company from Sweden to the States. So we're super excited to talk about this. Uh, first of all, if we have a startup in Sweden, how do I know it's the right move to move to Silicon Valley? That's a really good question. I think the first thing you have to figure out is why you want to move to Silicon Valley. Are you looking for investment? Are you trying to do business? Are you looking for talent? Those are the three main reasons people move. And and they all have different considerations. I would say, first of all, you don't want to move to Silicon Valley unless your business model is ready for the United States. And the reason I say that is there are some business models like in fintech, for example, where the Europe is still really ahead of the United States in terms of the business relationships and the, and the adoption of technologies. And I have seen companies just hit the wall come too soon with a, a sort of fintech business model that the U.S. wasn't ready for. I think things are changing, but you can get better penetration faster in Europe and then come to the United States. So the first question is, why are you coming? I think on the and the issue of investment, I'll let Merrick, you, maybe you can talk a little bit about why someone would, when someone would look for investment in the United States. Uh, well, sure. Any time's uh, an okay time to look for investment. Uh, really, the issue is uh, coming to Silicon Valley isn't like uh, showing up in Hollywood to become an actor. Oh right? my God, I was just going to say, is it not? <laughs> yeah. 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 You can't just sit in a coffee shop and then someone walks in and be like, hey, we should just give you a ton of money. Hey, Ronnie, you told me it's much harder to be uh, you know, an actor than that. You can't just sit around. You have to do hard work to get those Yes, work. exactly. So apparently you need to do work in Silicon Valley as well. You can't just like mm. sit around and wait 
wait for someone to discover you and just like give you a fuck ton of money. Ooh, I just cursed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I would agree with that. So, yes. so uh, what we counsel uh, folks mm. that come to us um, from overseas uh, to do is to do a lot of homework, uh, talk to a lot of people, come visit, uh, meet VCs, meet with uh, other entrepreneurs, uh, and and do a lot of background work so that you should know you exactly. Have, what you're should doing. you really? Have, I mean, should you have an investor first in the U.S. before you move the company? Is that what you're saying? Should we go there to get investment before before we start doing the legal stuff? Or when do you? I, I think you should, uh, mm. and and if not an investor, at least a few very very good leads to investment. Because mm. uh, again, it, it, Silicon Valley, uh, as big and robust as it can be, the investment community is is pretty insular in a lot of ways, and so it, it's hard again just to show up on the shore and and, and break in without uh, having a lot of background work and a lot of uh, time spent uh, mining the so, opportunities. So let me ask you then: we we get a lot. Of of, um, people want to go to the US and learn more so they go more or less like uh, safari or trying to understand what it's all about uh, but they spill their beans they tell them about the secrets of doing and everything and they meet a lot of investors and they think now we're really close to get an investment yep. but it turns out that they're only maybe not always only but sometimes they're actually there to listen for their ideas is that true? is that something you should be scared of? should you have an NDA when you go there? oh that's pretty good how scared should we be? <laughs> <laughs> Of so, the legal stuff. <laughs> so, so you're not going to get a, a typical VC investor to sign an NDA. They won't do it. They can't. So, so there's an art of, uh, I guess I would, you know, in the old days, women would call it showing a little leg under the skirt. Uh, right? it's, just, it's like dating. It's eh? like dating. Yes. It's how much <laughs> can you tell them to get them interested without going too deep in, in details that could be used against you competitively. So there's a little bit of a game back and forth mm. to get their interest and to tell them enough, but not to, tell, not to give too many sensitive details of the technology or, or context, unless you know someone's really interested. Absolutely, they will meet with you to get competitive information because they have a a company in their portfolio. I mean, the thing you can do is do your research on that venture capital. So if they've already invested in your space and they've spent a lot of money on someone, they're less likely to be talking to you because that they want to invest in you. I mean, Merrick, I don't know what you think about that. Well, I think that's right. And there's another thing that we see happen a lot is you don't have to give a lot of detail to your investors when you're first sitting down with them. Uh, they want to hear a very high-level overview. They're interviewing you as a, as a person, as an entrepreneur, more than anything. Uh, ideas are good. They can read that in a deck or they can read that in a business plan if, if you actually have created one. Very few people do now. Uh, but it, it, really, the it's, it's the person that they're talking to the first time. That's the most so, important thing. So if I go there and they start asking me about a lot of details, maybe I should be a little bit worried that they're asking for too many details, not getting the high level things. I think that's right. Yeah, good point. Um, okay, so if I have a company in Sweden, we have some traction, we've got some customers. Uh, I My experience here is that there's some sort of, just like Hollywood, there's some sort of status to it. So people want to move just to move sure. so they can say, hey, we're a company in Silicon Valley now. Look at us, we made it. Uh, but moving to Hollywood doesn't mean you made it and moving to Silicon, Silicon Valley doesn't mean you made it, right? Oh, that's absolutely true. And there's more than one way to move. Let's just be clear. You, you can open a subsidiary 
and set up a, a subsidiary set of operations to address business to see if there's really something there versus doing a flip where you're really changing your headquarters and, and, and center of your corporation to be in, in the U.S. And a lot of European companies will put a toe in the water first and see if the business is there as a subsidiary and later when they have an investor and they'll build the value. Even in the U.S., people try to build the value, more and more try to build the value of their company before taking in a lot of money so they won't be diluted as much. They can get a higher valuation. So you can do that through a subsidiary as well. So there are different ways to come to the United States too. Speaking about valuation, I mean, you, I'm sure you've seen some companies here. Are the valuations different here and in the States? Higher, lower? Do you know? That's a hard question to answer. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think, but to be honest, it depends on the stage of your company. It depends on the space you're in. Um, it, it, I I don't have a sense the valuations are dramatically higher or lower, but I think there are a lot more variables that play into it. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of voodoo that goes into valuations, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's just, it's not even close to an exact science. Uh, you know, people you see just sort of licking their fingers and putting them in the air and, and trying to get a sense of what they think their, their company is worth. Um, you know, certainly we, we have statistics though. Uh, in, in the US, um, e- even at very early seed stage rounds, we're seeing uh, sizes of the rounds in the you know one one point five two million dollar range. Uh, so even very early you know seed stage rounds can be that much money, and on pre money valuations of around eight million dollars. That's would be a lot kind of, of money. Yeah. Uh, it is, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, it, as you asked, you know, why why come mm. to Silicon Valley? I mean, that, that because you can get more money. Is you, that the answer? <laughs> you can get money. There, there's a lot of capital, and um, the the valuations can be quite high relative to other parts of the world. But I would also expect that the competition. We talk about talent, for instance, in Sweden, right. we're getting actually it's getting difficult to get talents to our startups, tech talent, the real good tech talent. Uh, we need to go abroad and try to do other things. Uh, I mean, is there so much talent in Silicon Valley ready for a unknown Swedish startup coming there that no one knows about? It's a really good question. There's a lot of talent. There's more concentrated talent there than anywhere else. But even Silicon Valley companies will go out of the United States or will go into other parts of the United States. Silicon Valley is a very expensive place to live. And I have clients that have development centers all throughout Eastern Europe, in Estonia, in Canada, in the Philippines, in South America. So there's a certain kind of high-level talent. There's certain certain types of specific programmers, for example, or certain types of executives, or certain types of marketing people with connections. If you need to do business with the U.S. companies, those are going to be present in greater concentration in Silicon Valley than anyone else. The networking is deeper. And that's actually one thing I think a lot of people miss in Sweden sometimes if they haven't heard it before, that it's actually a great go-to-market place. If you're in that market, if you have some of those selling to Amazon, Google, but also the mobile giant. Everyone puts someone in there for, from m and I guess, in Silicon Valley. Is that a correct statement? Or is it, uh, I mean, it's not just for the money. It's actually go-to-market and selling things. It's absolutely go-to-market. And mo- mm. go-to-market is critical. I have a client, actually not a Swedish company. They're an Austrian company. But where they started with a very small presence in the United States, and they have very complicated software that is... Uh, licensed by big banks and big financial institutions. And they were just a small operation and at first with nobody in the United States. And they have one guy in the United States. And they have got incredible traction. 
in doing the deals in the United States because they have a solution that nobody else has. And then cool. that's the perfect place to go. Yeah. So if if I have a company here and I decide to just not dip my little toe in the water, I decide to just like move. Yeah. What do I need to do? What do I need to know? Merrick, I'll let you feel that one. Well, why don't we start with what you don't do? So, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the one very common mistake, and I just heard this last week when talking to a CEO of a of a, of a company based in France. Um, he, he was coming over, uh, hired a couple of employees in the U.S., started a subsidiary, but he himself did not have uh, a, a work visa in the U.S., and he was just coming over as a tourist. Um, you know, flying into the country, uh, telling the authorities that he was visiting friends, uh, and uh, you know, showing Ooh. up many, many times in a year. Uh, this is bad. It, it, ultimately, he could run into quite a bit of trouble, including being barred from the country uh, for five years. And you, you won't necessarily get a whole lot of warning if that's going to happen to you. Um, you could just be stopped at the border and sent home. And so, uh, you, you know, one big pitfall that everyone should avoid is is thinking that you can. Just come in and go without doing some background work and some but homework. Where is there a license? I mean, oh, Esther's a tourist visa, but is it? You're a not allowed. Visa, right? uh, well, then is it B one B two visa? Yeah, but but yeah. you're allowed to have some meetings, or like, where do you draw the line? Yes, so you can ha- come and have meetings, uh, and you will be asked at the border by the border patrol agents what you're doing where you're going and they will keep records of this and so if you have a compelling story like oh I'm coming to have a meeting with such and such a client that's fine if you're coming back every you know two weeks um, at some point they're gonna they're gonna start asking more difficult questions and so and they have uh, you know their ways of finding out what you're up to okay you're, so just uh, just be to, honest yeah, that's it yeah. be honest but, but you're allowed to go in there on the tourist visa and have one meeting I mean you don't have to worry because if you go to China for instance I know As a fact, you need to have a business visa. If you don't, you can't even be in the meeting. You could be at risk. Yeah, if you're from Sweden, I believe you have a business uh, uh, visa waiver uh, program that will apply, but there are mm. specific time limits. There's uh, y- You can't necessarily be doing it all the time. Mm. And so for most of our clients that are coming over, we say... Step one, go talk to an immigration lawyer. Um, th- that's who handles these matters in the U.S. Uh, we don't have people doing it themselves. Uh, and get the correct visa so that you won't have the risk of, of uh, violation uh, it's as a, you're coming over. It's especially important now because under the current administration in the United States, the laws are changing. And the immigration lawyers are on top of that and can make sure you're doing the right thing at the right time. It it can be a nerve-wracking process. I went through it to get a visa for an EU attorney that we've hired to help us work with our EU clients. And it was the first time I'd done it as a as a as a as a client. And I was so happy. I'm a lawyer, but I was so happy these immigration lawyers could just take all the mystery out of it and just tell me exactly what to do and what to put on the piece of paper. And it was very comforting. Cool. So, okay, so then let's say this new startup has the visa. It's so good to go. But then besides the visa, what do I need to know? Can I have an AB, as we call it, Axibolog here in Sweden and just move over? Or like, do I need to start a new company with there? How, how does it work? 
No, so you do not want to uh, come do business in the U.S. with your AB. Um, the main re- there are several reasons for that, but uh, one very big reason is tax. Um, the, the United States uh, likes to tax uh, not just uh, people within its borders, but companies outside of its borders as well. well you know, we, we're from Sweden. We're used to taxes. I would just say that uh, the, the United States uh, can can be uh, pretty painful when when it comes to corporate tax rates. That's something we're actually working on. And this is complicated, right? To even understand. It's not you you read a couple of lines on a piece of paper and you're like, cool, I got it now. This is a complicated situation. Well, computing the tax is complicated, but knowing to start a subsidiary isn't. In in pretty much all cases, if you're coming to do business and establishing a presence in the U.S., you're probably going to want to start a subsidiary in the U.S. and it would be a U.S. corporation most likely. Does it matter which state that you're in? Or it's like, okay, I'm in the U.S., good to go, I can move to Alabama or like wherever I want to go. Is it the same rules? So any U.S. corporation can do business in any state in the U.S. Often there needs to be a filing made in a new state. So if you're setting, if you if you're a California corporation, you might start with an office in California, and then if you open an office in New York, you can still be the California corporation, but you might have to register in New York as well, just as it, what we would call a foreign corporation, even though it's from one state to another. It's just a form. It's not complicated. Yeah, it's, it's not complicated at all. Um, the the most common advice that we give is if you're coming to the U.S. and just forming a subsidiary because you want to have some employees there and you want to go to market, um, a corporation in your state of incorporation like California can be just fine. It's the simple way to do it. If, on the other hand, you are intending to come and, and in effect, reincorporate or flip into the United States, the uh, vehicle to do that with is a Delaware corporation because Delaware is the uh, entity that any U.S. investor would want to invest into. It's this tiny, tiny, tiny little state. And they really don't have much in this state except corporation filings. Yeah, that's their main business. They're really good mm-hmm. at corporate And they're really law. good at it. So that's what Delaware is known for. That is the only thing Delaware is known for, <laughs> as far as I know. I, the, I, the I, I hope I don't get mad emails from people in <laughs> no. Delaware. But it's it true. The, wasn't DuPont from Delaware? Did I get that totally completely? I, I used to go to school in, the, in, in the Philadelphia, very close by. Very close by. Yeah. You, you mean as in DuPont model? No, I no. meant the chemical company. chemical company. Yeah. Oh, that might be wrong, but uh, I I think that's that's interesting. So if you have a subsidiary and then you want to flip afterwards, will that make? Uh, You're right. I just googled. They're from Delaware. Well yeah, that's done, where Ted. I thought. Yep. So well, I'm a, I'm a biochemist, right? Yes. <laughs> so, but uh, is is it uh, will it be complicated then if I start out with a subsidiary, or is that easy to flip even with that? Well, flipping can be complicated. It depends. It depends on what you have going on uh, on the on the Sweden side. I mean, if you have multiple investors and uh, multiple rounds of financing with complex uh, investor agreements, uh, flipping involves translating those, maybe literally, but at least legally, into uh, th- that of a U.S. holding company. And so that you know that can be a pretty big project. That's that's a team sport. It involves uh, lawyers in the U.S. as well as your your legal counsel. And sounds cheap. Yeah. No? It's, it's very cheap. You can do it in like two days. It's well, no problem. Well, actually, actually, I, I would just like to. We just did that with a company that we moved to Los Angeles, and I, I think uh, it was very easy because we were only we're like uh, four or five investors in that company. Mm-hmm. It's very young still, so in that case, it was very easy to do it. However, what we did in that case is that we, what you just said, I was going to ask about that, is that we uh, incorporated a holding company in Delaware, and we kept the, the daughter company in Sweden as it is, and. 
their logic for that was it could be quite good to keep the IP in Sweden. And my question, do people do it the other way around? Is there, are there other ways of doing it? How do you choose? So, so you can uh, dip your toe in the water if you wanted to. So you could, if you, some, some of our clients will actually think, we don't want to flip yet, but we want to come to the US. We want a subsidiary. We want to go to market as a first step. And so they will form a Delaware subsidiary, though, knowing that it's possible that one day yeah. they might want to flip. Um, and once you have that subsidiary, uh, turning that into the parent company is, is just a little uh, legal gymnastics. It, it can be done relatively easily as, as long as you have a simple structure, as you described. Uh, if there's more complexity on the Sweden side, then it can be a little more complex, but it's still very doable. Hmm. When they said keeping the IP in Sweden was a good idea, were they thinking about tax considerations or? Um, well, I, I think there was um, there there, there might have been some tax considerations yeah. in that in this case, yes, yeah, and I had uh, yes, absolutely, I had because I had to do with uh, paying the royalty to the mother company in this case, I think, or to yeah. the holding company, yeah, and, and that's you right. see familiar, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, so, so the other thing that lurks in the background of, of if you're doing a flip and how you set up the structure are going to be tax considerations, mm-hmm. and the longer you've been operating and the more assets you have the more complicated the tax considerations are going to be. Um, having the IP, other than the tax cons- considerations, the, I, you know, the IP can be in a lot of different jurisdictions. Where people place it often is for tax considerations. What you want to make sure you're doing, just to diverge from the corporate for a second, is if you're going to do business in the United States, wherever the IP is owned, you want to make sure you have an IP strategy in the United States. You want right. to you, you you want to make sure you've extended whatever your Swedish strategy is into the U.S. and that could be everything's open source and there is no you know the strategy is make it open. It can be a variety of strategies, but you want to have a strategy in addition to the tax planning. Yeah, that, that's nice you say that. That resonates very well with the discussions we have with our friends at Sync as well and talking about IP and IP strategies. That's a whole area by itself. It's yep. very important, especially for startups. Do you see a lot of hopeful companies moving over? And then just have their dream shattered. <laughs> How many <laughs> or die? Just, or or is it um, is it most often like a successful place to be? Well, it's, or is it, it harsh? It's it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. And, and we may we may have different <laughs> perspectives on this. But one thing I I will say is that when a company has been operating in Sweden for a while and then they decide to come to the United States, they're a little more advanced than a lot of companies that just start in the United States. So I would say there's a pretty high rate of flame out for startups generally in the United States. What You, you have the venture statistics, Merrick. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of Traditionally, in the, in the venture capital community at least, we think of the old rule of thumb that out of 10 companies that get funded by VCs in the U.S. at least, and this is U.S. companies, um, maybe one of them is going to be really successful, and that, that would be a happy outcome. Uh, maybe a few of them uh, will be sort of successful, sort of not, and maybe they'll have a kind of happy outcome. And then, you know, the majority of them will not have a happy outcome at all. Um, and so I agree with Maureen, though. If it, it, It's sort of a, a selection process. If, if if a company has come from Sweden, they've probably uh, you know survived. They're, they're, they're more fit. Yeah. And so the, the survival of the fittest uh, you know, is, is more likely to be in their favor. Uh, okay, so we hear this a lot, the survival of the fittest. But is that sometimes you just need a, a great support around you so you can survive. Uh, from what I've heard... Um, 
Silicon Valley can be a pretty harsh place. It can be hard to find that support that you need. So if we're over here now in Sweden and you have a company and you want to move over, like where do you start? Should you contact a lawyer first to find some support or should you find a VC first or just a, a friend on Facebook? I mean, where do you start? Well, I, I think it, it, it first comes to why you want to come. And you have to look at those three variables, investment, business, and talent. To say it's investment, since this is the investment podcast. <laughs> okay. So, so when I would start with investment, I would start. I would. It, it's networking and it's contacts. I mean, you have to make sure you've got a provable business model, and you have to find some some inroads into your into your field to get to get some people. You absolutely do need connections are important. Uh, how you get those connections can be a number of ways. I, I, yeah, we're starting to see, uh, as I'm sure you are here in Sweden as well, the ascendancy of the incubator and the accelerator, right? So, yeah, we see the American incubators coming over here too. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, they're coming everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a good thing? I think it, I think it's a very good thing, yeah. but I also I was wondering why they were moving out. But we can come back to that later on. Okay, um, um, yeah, yeah. So it, we what what we will often see is if if somebody really needs to get their bearings and they just they don't have uh, the contacts themselves. Uh, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Starting out in an incubator, an accelerator can be a really good way to to, to come, stay a few months, really get acquainted. Uh, many of them are very good at uh, introducing uh, overseas entrepreneurs to the right people uh, for their industry. Would you still say, well, Silicon Valley used to be the number one place to be. Is it still the number one place to be or do you see companies moving to other places? So it's unquestionably the number one place to be. That doesn't mean it's the only place to be. There, I, I think the... Uh, ecosystem is expanding within the United States to other parts of the United States and it's expanding around the world. When you talk about the incubators, they're not moving out of Silicon Valley. There are huge presidents. They're in Silicon Valley and they're in Europe and they're in the Nordic countries they're and they're in Asia and they're expanding their models and, 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 and you know, volume isn't always good. That's, but that's true. Well, we saw also a lot of U.S. In, uh, VCs coming over to Sweden, and some of them 
well, now it was probably more than six months, but just to talk generally, I think uh, they said the valuations in Silicon Valley were so high, so we were looking at some of these companies yeah. before they come to Silicon Valley and uh, thinking that they could get a better deal here in Sweden. They're smart like me. That's right. You guys are here. <laughs> we're here. And because we're we like here. our Swedish companies and we want to get to them before they come to Silicon Valley That's too. Right. No, ser- seriously, um, that, you know, er- everyone is looking for the needle in the haystack and, and it absolutely is true. I think the number of VCs that will make, inv- you know, that really want to do aggressive investments without moving the company to Silicon Valley is still a minority. Um, but but they would be foolish not to be looking more closely at some of the talent coming out, especially in certain in- industries coming out of here. For example, the fintech industry. Uh, this what's happening in Sweden is really notable. It, it is. It, another question on that regard. If I had my company here in Sweden, I'm going to incorporate it in Sweden. I'm thinking I'm going to go maybe to US sometime. Would it be better to incorporate somewhere else in Europe, like Luxembourg or somewhere? Would that be easier, or is it the same work? I really don't think so. I, I think that, at least from a U.S. investor's perspective, there's not a favoritism of, of one legal structure over another. Um, I think that most U.S. investors ultimately uh, envision that their portfolio companies, if they're if they're coming here, may one day become a, a U.S. company in some sort of flip scenario. Uh, but I don't I don't think that Sweden versus France versus Belgium versus Luxembourg is going to really make it would make a, a difference. difference. No. Okay. So can we? Just talk about lawsuits here for a yeah. Yes, it always comes up. Yes, of course, because yeah. everybody's terrified. I know they um, are. I mean, in Sweden, we have laws, and then you have a lawyer put down something on a piece of paper, and we all agree. And it's a short but piece of it's paper. It's a short piece of paper. I can right. really understand it yeah. because I speak Swedish, yeah. and it's actually Swedish. But when it's legal in in the states, yeah. it's just insane, right? Um, and so many papers. <laughs> it's like reading the Bible all over, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so how do if anyone is listening now as an entrepreneur and he's sitting there and like, okay, cool, I want to go to market or I want to get better investors, whatever it is, I'm, I want to move over to Silicon Valley. I don't want to end up in court. Yeah. What do I have to do? Well, so, so, so a, a, a couple of things, uh, a threshold. So the legal system in the United States is very different and that's why it's so scary. Uh, over, over here, you have a short contract. You have you have a different kind of law system. It goes to a judge. Everybody has confidence. The judge will make a decision, and nobody spends a lot of time worrying about it. And you it. can't really sue each other for you know I burn my tongue on coffee or right. something. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, that that's a separate specialty of the United <laughs> States. I have to admit. But yeah. in, in, in terms of, of contracts between business partners, cust, you know, customers, um, not not consumers, the the U.S. system is one where the lawyers try to get everything down in the contract. We try to write you know. They have these long contracts and they look really terrifying because we're trying to give the judge a roadmap of what, you know, how they should make a decision if something goes wrong. So, U.S. lawyers are really scared by the Swedish court system because it, they, they, they don't have the, all the things in the piece of paper that There's tell no them what's going to happen and, and, and you have to take a leap, a leap of faith. Um, so, so, that's, I think, a lot of the fear. Now, what I will have to say is there are always the horror stories and they get a lot of attention, right? There's just tons of horror stories and they get a lot of attention. The truth is, in my practice, day to, you know, day, to day, day in and day out for something approaching 25 years, the number of contracts that have actually 
gone into litigation after you do all that work are tiny. The business relationship doesn't work out more often than people do. So you don't end up into... You do all these things to try to, in the contract, and it's a more time-consuming process, but you do it so so everything's worked out and no one has an incentive to go to court. So actually going to court in a commercial dispute is relatively rare. When they go wrong, it's painful, but it's relatively rare. It doesn't happen as often as people think. Now, you've got these other subsidiary, the the, you know, the products liability, those types of lawsuits. That, that doesn't have anything to do with the contract. That's the U.S. legal system. That's partially what the insurance is for. Of course, but what I... Um what I find interesting is I dyed my hair in the States and I had to uh, sign a piece of paper that I understand that my hair will now be a different color when yeah. I leave. Yeah. Uh, so say that I, that, you know, that there's a company here in Sweden to have a service, whatever it is, a business to consumer service, uh, then how scary should you be to, uh, you know, maybe get sued by a, a customer? Is it common? So there are, it happens. There are a lot of things you can do to reduce it, to have a set of terms with the, the consumer that go into arbitration instead of a, a big court battle. And the, the thing that they have in the United States that, that no company wants to get involved, but consumer activists like, it's called class action litigation, where some uh, there's, there's, a, there's a group of attorneys we call the plaintiff's bar, and they try to get a representative member of the class, and maybe a tiny thing with $50 of damage, but they find 50,000 people with $50 of damage, and those turns into big lawsuits. So there are ways to get agreements so they're, they can't go into class action litigation. It's tricky. The law does not favor them. But if you do it just right, that's where you need a lawyer. It's important to have a lawyer to sort of protect yourself from those things. But it sounds very expensive as a startup to hire a lot of lawyers to get all these, this paperwork that you need. It depends on what you're doing. For example, let's say you've got a, SAS, you've got a consumer SAS product, some sort of app, right? We do those lawyers who do that kind of business do those kind of contracts day and day. It's not like the lawyers are inventing the language with you. We have toolkits and we can put them together. And if you get the right advice at the right time from lawyers who are used to working with startups, we have ways, you know, not to make this a commercial, but we have ways to make it affordable because it, 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 we don't, we don't, get anything in the long run if the company's not successful. So we have ways to try to get you what you need early on because we've crossed these bridges many, many times. Can and you give us a number if there's a startup listening and then they want to go over um, and they need help with some paperwork? Are they looking at sure. like $50,000 no, or no, are we no, talking no, about $2,000? No, no. no. So what, Merrick, why don't you talk generally about the forming an entity costs? Sure. So uh, forming a legal entity is, is relatively easy in the U.S. Um, we don't have all the know your customer laws that some countries do. Uh, y- you probably will need at least one human being on the ground if, or at least a, a U.S. <laughs> citizen somewhere uh, that, that can uh, vouch for the company, that can open a bank account, things like that. Um, the cost itself of, of actually doing the legal work can vary, but at a firm like ours can be around $2,000 to uh, get the lawyers to do what they need to do to get the paperwork done, to file it with the state, to get the state registration, and to be off and running. And we usually send our uh, startup clients with uh, some sort of initial forms for things like staying out of trouble if you're hiring an independent contractor, uh, staying out of trouble uh, if, if you're hiring an employee. Uh, and so the, you know, our, our clients walk away pretty well prepared to at least do the first steps. 
Yeah, we have a kit we give you as part of that, of, of day-to-day agreements. Then if you need additional agreements for your business model, that varies a lot depending on the business model. But I would say the average range for a startup that doesn't have an overly complicated business model is is three to 5000 to 15 that's really rough. It depends on if they're doing a lot of complicated contracts, it may be one thing. Um, where it starts to get more expensive uh, is if you're doing a big negotiation with some big company, say you've, you know, you've got your first customer and it's, it's somebody huge like General Electric or, or Citibank or, 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 you know, and they're going to send you a piece of paper that's like a book. And you're going to need a lawyer to help you sort through that, and that's all. That gets more expensive, but at that point, there's revenue, right? There's there's a reason to do that contract because you've got revenue. But the initial getting to business, we can make very affordable and very predictable. It sounds very affordable, I must say. It does. I mean, I'm and, surprised. And I think also, I mean, in terms of time span, how how much time does it take for someone to do that or flip a company with a fairly easy structure? Well, with a fairly easy structure, a flip can be pretty fast. Uh, so incorporating a, a company in Delaware, just for, for your listeners' uh, uh, learning uh, joy, is uh, you know something that could happen in literally a matter of hours. So like wow. De- Delaware is open now. If you were, if, if you were to... If I, <laughs> Delaware if I had, is now open. <laughs> if I had an engagement letter from you, like right, right here on the table with us, uh, I could, uh, within the next uh, two hours, have a, 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 Delaware cor- a new we should, Delaware we should corporation. Have, we should have done that just for fun for InvestPod in Delaware. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Delaware is now open with the InvestPod. Yeah, <laughs> a little experiment. So I- anyway, it can be very fast. Uh, normally, we don't do it that fast, just because you know most people like to read what they're signing before they <laughs> send it in. But it, you know, if, if you are feeling a little risky, you could do it that way. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, except the visa stuff that people. Um, clearly make mistakes sometimes. Is there anything else that is a common mistake that startups do? And then they come to you and be like, oh my God, please help. Sure, another one we see quite a bit is um, startup, let's just call it in Sweden, uh, is... uh, opening a subsidiary in the U.S. They're doing a go-to-market strategy. They're going to hire a couple of, of U.S. Uh, support engineers or maybe some sales uh, people to really get things going uh, big time. And what do they do to get these people equity in the Swedish parent company? Well, they just pull out their stock option documents from their Swedish company and they send them over and get them signed and then file them away and that's it. They're done. Well, except that the, they've just done two things at that moment. They have probably violated U.S. securities laws, most likely, because their Swedish plan probably does not comply. And they've probably given uh, either the company or the employee or both uh, a pretty significant tax problem uh, that might not be found for a long time. The good news is uh, most most of the time, these problems, if, if they come to a lawyer, uh, are, are, can be corrected. Uh, and so the, the key, though, is if anyone's listening to... Uh, come to the lawyer first because it's usually cheaper to do it that way and we can set up that company with a US compliant sub plan of the Swedish company's option plan uh, and so they can feel comfortable giving options to their US employees without um, violating a bunch of laws so yeah try to not break the law yeah, that, that's, a, yeah that's, that's a good thing that's what we're going for <laughs> um, and um, 
Oh my God, I just had like 400 questions I'm trying to pick because we don't have a lot of time. Um, yeah, so there is uh, this company or organization or whatever it's supposed to call the 500 Startups. Mm-hmm. Um, Heard of them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we do a lot of work with them. Their companies in the United States. Yeah, and they've had some presses in Sweden as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how, how how do you guys work with them? Uh, we, we will be contacted with a lot of their their incubator classes and help them <coughs> do the legal paperwork to get up and running. Oh, okay. Cool. Good. So anyone listening, you can contact 500 Startups and maybe go through there and get some help and support system because they're here and there. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the incubators will will have relationships that they can refer you to. They'll have, they'll have a selection of law firms you can talk to, accountants, bankers, things like that. It comes with the are there package. Any, sorry, are there any specific trends that you see going on in Silicon Valley? Is it apps still or is there what's hot right now? Well, <laughs> the one we got just totally... Side just sideswiped with uh, earlier this summer was the initial coin offerings. Mm. Uh, are you guys familiar with what oh, yes. those are? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, please, please explain. Our because listeners no, are not. Yeah. So yeah. So it, it seemed like it happened like overnight. You, you know, within one week time, you know, none of us had heard of an initial coin offering, and then like within a week, all of us had heard of it, and we had like a significant number of people calling Everybody us. Everybody was calling. About it. Everybody was calling. And we're going what what's going on and what it is is essentially uh, a, a a initial debut sort of like an IPO but instead of stock it's a new form of cryptocurrency or crypto token that is being offered to the public um, sometimes in exchange for money sometimes in exchange for other cryptocurrencies or tokens uh, and th- this became a, v- a very very hot uh, topic in the last few months in the US well uh, I think it was last month the SEC yep. um, um, the, which was the, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates all of the securities markets in the U.S., uh, put their hand up, essentially, and they, they wrote a very detailed memo saying, not so fast, all you people that are doing this, this is uh, very possibly a transaction and a security, and you need to slow down and get some good securities law advice before you go do these. Yeah, and also, also overnight... Um here, I think it was overnight. There was I saw an article that China is now saying, "Wait a minute about about cryptocurrency." And a lot of the Ethereum and a lot of the cryptocurrencies took a nosedive today. Between the two together, there's a lot of doubt in the market. But the but the issue under U.S. law, one of the issues under U.S. law, is if that's considered a security, if you really to the public, there are all kinds of rules and regulations about it that that can operate to defeat the purpose of why you would do an initial coin offering in terms of getting a a bigger buy-in and a bigger market from people who aren't quote-unquote accredited investors in the United States. So it's very controversial right now. Yeah, why why do you want to do that to begin with? Why do people want to do that? I think I think they 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 want to do it because it seems like one an easy way to raise money and and two it's it's a way of trying it's a little bit it's a little bit like crowdsourcing or crowdfunding in that it's a way to try to get buy-in for your business model and your currency it has a lot of it has a lot of cachet you can try to attract people to whatever your product is through your cryptocurrency offering was at least the clients i got on the phone that's why they were attracted to it mm. uh, but it just comes with a lot of question marks at this point 
Well, that's right. And I think that underlying all this, there is a real uh, sense in the Valley that blockchain technology will actually have some real applications. Yeah. And, you know, this is an area that investors are looking at. Um, it, it's something that, uh, frankly, I think the rest of the world has been more on top of than U.S. companies have been. And so there's this excitement over, well, maybe we need to catch up. Maybe we should be doing so, some more investing in this area. But uh, I, I honestly think that the some of the ICOs that were happening is, is, is sort of a lot of uh, froth, uh, tulip bulbs um, coming into the picture as well and sort of riding the coattails of that true interest in blockchain. Here's a bonus question. So if someone invests from whatever country in the world is in Australia or from mm-hmm. Europe, anyway, in an American company as an, as an angel, mm-hmm. uh, which law applies? Is it American law or is it European law or Australian law, depending on where that person is? It would be American law because the investment documents would be governed by American law. And there are rules Merrick can quote better than I can about, depending on your entity, what type of investment you can take in from foreign entities. It's easier in some types of U.S. entities than others. Yeah, that's right, and we will often get uh, you know investors coming in from overseas to the U.S. and they will want to impose their law on the entire investment, and we have to patiently explain to them, and they're and they're usually overseas lawyers that uh, okay, even if that were possible, we could only get like half of the investment terms in under your law because the many significant terms uh, have to be filed with the state uh, and and become part of the public record in the state of incorporation, and those have to be in English and they have to be governed by the state of incorporation law. It's, it's basic corporate law. And so it really makes no sense to have sort of two laws governing an investment. And so we end up doing mostly U.S. law. And then vice versa, if it is an American investor, angel investor in America, um, investing in a Swedish company, Swedish law applies, I guess. I think most likely that that would be the case. We're not Swedish lawyers, of course, but you know, I think most uh, investors that are American investors that come to a place like Sweden, actually they set up special funds to invest, uh, special investment vehicles to invest in, in the European markets and into Sweden. In particular, I think 500 Startups has their own uh, uh, fund. You mentioned them earlier. Mm. Um, and, and they will actually set up to invest in uh, local Uh, companies with local counsel and local documents and governing law. Yeah, so, and and I was thinking, if I'm as a private person now, a business angel coming to the US and invest in a company there, what what are the things I should really look at? I mean, are there any specific things I should look after? Is it, I know the tax, uh, I mean, the taxes are different, so you need to defer tax or not defer tax, but there will be withholdings of taxes and things, but are there other things as a Swedish investor in the US I need to look for? That's right. So withholding tax is a big one. Um, that you know, other issues besides tax that you, you know often want to think about is you don't want to be uh, transacting business in the U.S. So it depends on the kind of investment that you're doing. But um, oftentimes it makes sense to incorporate a special investment vehicle to do an investment uh, into a company. Um, sometimes companies that uh, overseas investors want to invest in are not the classic tech startup, right? So um, you know. If, if people are coming to invest in the film industry, for example, those kinds of companies are incorporated in a little bit different way. Usually LLCs tax as a partnership. There can be really big problems for uh, an individual being a partner in a U.S. company uh, and being subjected to U.S. tax. So uh, setting up a special purpose vehicle for that investment is often advisable. It's, but, it's actually yeah. not as scary as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that's interesting. In, in Sweden, in terms of taxes, we have a very strict line between capital gains and... Uh, 
yes. if you work in the company. And ordinary like, income. That's right, yeah. ordinary income. So if I'm an angel investor, sometimes you could be scrutinized how much work you're actually doing in that company. And just out of curiosity, sometimes you could get a discount on the, on the you know, whatever it's convertible or if it's uh, options or something. How will that be? Do I need to look after for that when I go in, if I'm going to do some work in that company? Well, what I would counsel my clients to do if they are the company is uh, separate the sweat equity Mm -hmm. or the work that somebody is doing for the company from any money that they put into the company. Okay, Those are two separate investments. And so what we'll often see is uh, I would advise the investor and the uh, company being invested in uh, look, it, do a safe or some sort of proper investment vehicle. Oh, safe. Most people don't know what that is here in Sweden, oh. unless they went to Y Combinator. Ah, okay, so that that's where it's from. So Y Combinator uh, decided they wanted to make investing investing super simple, and so they created a it's about a five and a half page legal document uh, called a safe simple agreement for future equity, that is becoming sort of the the most popular uh, vehicle for uh, very very early stage seed funding to happen. Um, um, there's essentially no negotiation that, that, that goes on. It's, it, it happens very quickly. And so these are, these are a very popular instrument. So um, what I would say is, for example, if you're, invest, if you're an investor, get one of those for your investment money on market terms and then get some sort of stock option or something that is tied to your sweat equity or the other work that you're doing as well. So you should get both. Good point. Great. Um, we're, we're out of time. <laughs> so, oh, no. Thank you so much for coming. It's great. Thank you Thank for sharing you. for all the knowledge. Thank you. It was really fun. And what is your website if anyone wants to check it out? It's uh, www.paradigmcouncil.com. And it's a long word. P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M-C-O-U-N-S-E-L.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And enjoy your time in Sweden. We will. We love it here. <laughs> Bye. 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 Tack för att du har lyssnat på Investpodden med Ronja och Ted. Glöm inte att följa våra sociala medier, Instagram, Facebook och Twitter. Och vi vill såklart höra ifrån dig. Så hör av dig till ronja.investpodden.se. Ha det bra, vi hörs. Hej! Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.